Psalm chapter 57 tonight. We go through weekly the Bible five chapters a week. The idea is that you would read chapter one on Monday, two on Tuesday, three on Wednesday. So you got your five weekdays to read the five chapters. And on the weekend, go ahead and read them all in one sitting. Get the whole like concept in your head. So weekly we're going through five chapters. This week we happen to be in Psalm 57 through 61. Those will be the five that I'm covering tonight. And... Um, I hope to answer some difficult challenges and questions within this section of Scripture. If you guys know what the imprecatory psalms are, that's where we're going. So, let us pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would have full reign, that this would be your throne room, and that, God, that I would do the best that I can through your spirit to speak your truth. And Father, we come to your word tonight with humility, and we look to you for direction, for answers. God, we are not above your word, and we submit ourselves underneath it tonight. So for those in difficult situations, Father, I pray that you would work your purposes in their life, and that you would open their eyes to see the goodness of your steadfast, unfailing, never-ending, victorious love. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Difficulties have a tendency to distort your perspective of God's purposes. The, The difficult situations that I'm in, they generally have this tendency to change the way I see God's overall purpose. And the reason for this is that when I'm in difficult situations, my preferences come in and clash with God's purposes. God has a purpose to lead me here. And my preferences say, but I'd rather not go there. Or I'd rather not do that. Or I'd rather not talk to that person. And so difficult situations arise when my preferences come and clash with God's purposes. And in those moments, we have come to learn passages such as Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. But here's a challenge that I found. Sound issues can be much more complicated than you realize. No, you want me to just go to the... Difficulties. Clashing with our preferences. Okay. So, as I was saying... um, Romans 8.28, usually in difficult times we go to a passage like that where it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. And what I've realized in life is that all things does not mean God's purposes come together with my preferences and somehow they work together and make life really good. All things does not mean my preferences and his purposes. All things means his purposes and his purposes work together despite my preferences for good. 
And so what we need to do is when we're in the midst of difficulty is learn to praise his purposes rather than seeking to prioritize my preferences. All right. When I begin to prioritize my preferences, that's when I begin to have a, di- a distorted perspective of his purposes. And that, I think, is what we see with the psalmist here tonight. He's definitely in a difficult spot, a time of difficulty. Look, for example, at 57 verse 4. It says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. You see that he seems to be the victim of some sort of slander. He's also wrestling with the rulers of the world being wicked and unjust in chapter 58, verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? That's the same word as Lord or ruler in Hebrew. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. And if you read the rest of that psalm, you'll see that the psalmist is definitely at the violent end of their hands. He's going through a difficulty with them. 59 verse 1. It seems that he is innocently hated by his enemies. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. I'm innocent, in other words. Awake, come to me and see. You, Lord of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself and punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs, prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. And so he seems to be innocently hated by his enemies. And he's also struggling with God's chastisement against the nation of Israel in chapter 60, verse 1. He says, Oh God, you've rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches. For it totters, you have made your people see hard things. You've given us to wine to drink. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Again, another difficulty, another hard time. And then finally, in our fifth chapter, 61, verse 1. It seems that he's fainting with weakness before his enemies. It says, Hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer. For the end of the earth, from the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. So lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge and a strong tower against the enemy. So in these five chapters, he's clearly going through some sort of difficulty where God's purposes are not lining up with his preferences. And he's now, as I'm going to show you here, looking at God's purposes with a distorted perspective. In the midst of our difficulties, we can begin to see God's purposes and tweak life to make it more comfortable for us. And the challenge, again, is not to prioritize my preferences in these moments, but it's to praise His purposes. 
Look at how the psalmist is twisting and distorting God's purposes. Um, Before I show you how he's doing it, what is God's purpose? I would say that the best way to summarize his historical purpose from creation to the end of the age would be in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. In Genesis 12, verse 2, what we have is man had just rebelled against God. Adam has been exiled from Eden, and some time has gone by, and man and civilization is getting worse and worse and worse. And God desires to restore man to dwell with himself. He desires to restore that relationship. So what he does is he chooses Abraham, who becomes Israel, and he seeks to bless the cursed nations through this nation Abraham, through Israel. So Genesis 12, verse 2 says, he's speaking to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What does God mean by I want to bless the nations. I want to bless you. I want to bless, bless, bless. What God means is he wants to reverse the curse that Adam inaugurated through his rebellion against God's kingship. Through Israel, God seeks to restore the nations to his presence so that they can be blessed and no longer cursed. All right, That's God's purpose. To bless the cursed nations with restoration to himself. But now here's our psalmist. He's in difficulty, and the tendency is to prioritize his preferences over God's purposes. So what does he do? He sees God's purposes with a distorted perspective. Two ways he does this. The first, he distorts God's purpose to bless the nations. He distorts God's purpose to bless the nations. Check out verse 10 of chapter 58. verse 10 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. God wants to bless the nations and restore them. The psalmist wants to curse the nations with retribution. 59 verse 5. You, O Lord of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. He wants another bloodbath. Go curse the nations, God. Psalm 60, verse 12. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So again, the opposite of blessing the nations, the psalmist is distorted in the view of God's purposes because of his difficulty. He just realizes, I prefer to be out of this with God. All these people who are making my life hard, curse them all. Forget your purposes, just wipe them out. I don't want to deal with them, I don't want to see them. What do we make of this? This isn't the only place in the Bible we read about the judgment of the nations. The prophets prophesy of this. Jesus comes on the scene in Israel. The Israelites are expecting him to bring a bloodbath to the Romans and every other Gentile province who's ever oppressed Israel. What do we make of this? Does God want restoration or does he want retribution? The answer is both. 
God first wants restoration with the nations. Then, after those who have rejected the restoration to his kingship at the end of the age, to those he will bring retribution. So is the psalmist right when he says, judge the nations, bring, let the righteous wallow in their blood? He is right, but the timing is off. Difficulty has caused him to distort God's purposes. Rather than seeking to bless the nations, he's calling down curses upon the nations. Second way he's distorting God's purposes. God, it's an extension of restoring the nations and blessing the nations through Israel. What he wanted us to do is love all people, including your enemies. And the psalmist distorts that. He doesn't love all people, and especially he doesn't love his enemies. Check out, chapter 58 is infamously known as an imprecatory psalm, and this illustrates perfectly um, how he's distorted God's purpose to restore the nations. He doesn't love anybody in this chapter. (laughs) 58, we saw how the leaders are being wicked. Verse 6, this is what he prays. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. And that last one refers to it being instant. Before, before anything even feels the heat of the fire, let him just be swept away. He is calling curses down upon these people who have wronged him. That's what imprecatory means. It's a big fancy word that scholars have designated to the Psalms that simply means to call down a curse upon your enemy's head. And to imprecate is to call down a curse. So imprecatory is a psalm praying for curses. Sounds really Jesus-like. So, clearly, I think as you guys read, and there's other places, um, I think Psalm like 137 talks about smashing the babies of Babylon against the pavement. And many other places we see David wishing that the teeth would just rot in the mouths of his enemies and the bones would turn into flames and all these kinds of curses upon his enemies. And here's one of them. Clearly these are sinful. All right? I, we don't read this and say, oh, here you go. Prayer time. Actually, in most traditional churches that use a liturgy, you never see an imprecatory psalm in their liturgy. <laughs> Because it's not a Christian practice to pray curses upon the heads of our enemies. This is sinful for at least two reasons. First, an imprecatory psalm is by nature a curse. And logically, a curse is working against God's purposes to bless the world through Israel and the church. So logically, it can't go. It's going against God's purposes. Second, the Old Testament commanded saints to love all people, including your enemies. So by calling curses down upon your enemies, you're not loving them, you're breaking the commandments. So these are sinful, and the psalmist is being sinful. For example, the Old Testament says, Leviticus 19.18, about loving your enemies. You shall not take vengeance 
imprecatory psalms calling for vengeance. Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or Exodus 23, 4-5. This isn't challenging. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, or if you see your enemy's car broken on the side of the freeway, you shall bring it back to him. Don't take it as opportunity to say, ha ha, served him right. Oh, where'd your ox go? If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So don't see that donkey struggling and say, ha ha, my enemy. Ah, that's so great. That's funny. Go help it. Even your enemy. So all throughout the Old Testament is mandated to your enemies. God's mission is to restore the nations and to bless them by bringing them back to himself. So you're not helping things by calling curses upon your enemy's head. Even in the New Testament, these laws are extended to us. Jesus, right after he washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, verse 34, you guys know this, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How's that a new commandment? We just read the Old Testament said, love your neighbor, that includes your enemies. And then Jesus comes to the disciples and says, I have a new commandment. Like, oh, what's this? Love one another. Pretty know that. Leviticus 19, Exodus 25. Jesus tells them it's a new commandment because he has intensified the meaning of love by inserting himself as the example of that love. Did you hear what he said? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's old. But here's the new part. Just as I have loved you. That just intensified what it means to love your enemies. Jesus demonstrated this that night when he washed not 11 faithful disciples' feet, but also the 12th traitorous Treacherous would be the right word. Enemy Judas. He washed his feet too. And this is highlighted on the cross. When Jesus' enemies mock him and they have killed him. And they're beating him and torturing him. And he says not, let me quote Psalms 58. Oh God, break their teeth. He doesn't do that. Instead, Luke records that he prays, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. And Stephen would later obey the same command in stunning fashion. As he's being stoned and rocks are hitting his head. Father, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he passed away. So clearly, we have this problem with this imprecatory psalm calling down curses upon your enemy's head right here in the Bible. So what do we do? Why is this here? It's in the Bible. How do we justify this? What do we do with it? What purpose does it serve? If you're like me, you sit there and read and go, hmm, so the person who I'm really not happy with right now, is this like my prayer for them today? Or am I just supposed to skip and say, okay, whatever. Or say, I don't know what to do. Uh, confusing, like, black hole of my theology. Don't know, everything just sucks and disappears in there. Um, 
I mean, what do you do with it? <laughs> no doubt, these are sinful. We have no place dealing with them in our lives. But I don't think we should just overlook them and say, okay, whatever. If God put it in the Bible for a reason. He allowed these psalmists to say these sinful, despicable prayers for a purpose. Let them be recorded. I think there's something that we should look at here. As C.S. Lewis said, where we find a difficulty, we may always expect a discovery somewhere with it. So wherever you find difficulty in the Bible, and we say, oh, <laughs> go around that one. See, it's loose to challenge us and say, that difficulty means there's discovery somewhere underneath it. And it's time to start digging and investigating. So what discoveries in here? I would like to show two discoveries. And I credit a lot of this to C.S. Lewis himself, who helped me. I thank God for minds like C.S. Lewis, who write intelligent things and help us along things that are very difficult for us. In his reflections in the Psalms, he writes a little bit about these Psalms. So I borrow some of that stuff and put in some of my own insights. And I'd like to show you guys two things about imprecatory Psalms. The first is I want to give a timid defense for them. A timid defense for them. That they're there. And it's, in some ways, good. Then I want to show you three benefits or reflections that we can gain from them. And those are golden. So what defense do I have for an imprecatory psalm? How do I justify calling curses upon your enemy's head? By their existence, it implies two things about the psalmist who's calling his curses down. First... He has a zealous, godlike indignation against sin. Right, the reason he's saying these things is because somebody has sinned against him and he's angry. And this indignation shows that he has this godlike zealousness against that sin. He hates it. If you love sin, you're not going to be calling curses down upon sinners. They're your homies, they're your friends, you're hanging out with them. So indignation, to some extent, is a good sign. It shows that you have the sensitivity towards what's right and wrong, and that you have this passion for what God's law says. And when you see God's law broken, something arises within you that says, this is not right. Fix it, God. Now, does he handle it the right way? No. But the feelings that are there and the words expressed show a godlike zealous indignation for sin. But see, this is where we must be careful. Because this same zealousness is often what leads to a lot of danger. It is usually those who are most willing to die for a cause, who are also the most willing to kill for that cause. And hence, we have often, throughout history, people doing horrible things in the name of Jesus. You go through the Crusades, and you go through the churches burning people who were, quote, heretics because they didn't hold to a particular theology. All these horrible things have been done because these were people that had great zeal, but it was according to their preferences, not according to God's purposes. Whenever we have an encounter with God, there's this two-edged sword that's very, very dangerous or very, very beneficial. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. The supernatural God entering a human soul opens to it new possibilities, both of good and evil. And from that point, the road branches one way to sanctity, love, humility, the other to spiritual pride, selfish, self-righteousness, 
and, practice, and persecuting zeal. And no way back to the mere humdrum virtues and vices of the unawakened soul. So God comes in and just shows, awakens you, and you have these extreme views on righteousness and wickedness. And there's no way to come back to this little relative humdrum whatever lifestyle. You have a say now on these things of the world. So he continues, If the divine call does not make us better, it will make us very much worse. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all created beings, the wickedest is the one who originally stood in the immediate presence of God. A.K.A. Satan. So when God comes and awakens us, there's that extreme roads to go on. And for many, they follow Christ. And for others, turns them into some of the worst men ever. So there's that zeal we see, and it's, it's, it's this two-edged sword. It's good, but it's also dangerous. The second defense here, if you want to call it that, for this psalmist is that um, not only does he have a godlike zealous indignation against sin, but he has faith in God's ultimate victory against sin. The words he utters here shows that he has faith that God's ultimately going to destroy sin. And you got to dig a little deeper to see this, but it's really, really neat. First, he understands that God is judge and that he's the one who can bring retribution against his enemies. The psalmist understands he can't and he shouldn't. He's not going to take the gun or the sword and the spear in their time and run it through the guys, but he's calling upon God to do it. He understands it's God's place as judge. So credit to that, he has faith in God's victor- his victory over sin, his future victory. Um, but further, the psalmist compares his enemies to the ultimate enemy. Look at verse 3. The wicked are... Let's start in verse 4. The wicked have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder, that's a snake, that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Notice who he likens his enemies to? A serpent. Then, he says, this is where the curse starts in verse 6, God, break their teeth in their mouths. How do you break teeth in someone's mouth? Well, calling, literally calling curses down on them, on their head. Come and smash their heads, their teeth shatter. Did you see the connection here, Bible scholars? Serpent, smashed head. I see this as the psalmist's expression of faith in God's promised victory over the enemy. Back in Genesis 3.15, what did God promise? He promised, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And then he says this key thing. The woman's offspring shall bruise the head of the serpent. In other words, God is foretelling from Eve is going to come some deliverance that will squash the serpent who represents the opposition to God's purposes. And the psalmist here sees 
that God will do that one day. So he's expressing faith. God, these people are the serpents. They're the offspring of the serpents. Smash their heads. Have victory. You need a win. Come reign and rule on your earth. This is not right. So the faith is a good thing. A little misplaced, however. Because remember, God wants first restoration, then retribution. So the retribution will come, but the heart of God first is that all shall be saved and that none should perish. So we don't pick at signs against Obama saying go to hell or whatever you see in TV. You pray for him like the Bible says. Retribution comes later. God will make right the wrongs of time. He will be judge on this earth. And until then, we look forward in faith and seek restoration till then. So those are, I guess, my timid defenses of the impregatory Psalms. It shows that there's a great zeal for God and faith in his future deliverance. But it's just a little overzealous. It's misguided at this point. But now, how can we benefit from these personally? What sort of reflections can we draw from a calling a curse down upon your enemy's head? I see three. First, the first benefit we see in the imprecatory psalms. They search our heart for the same feelings of hatred. When I read a psalm like this, it causes me to look introspectively, to search my own heart, to see, God, do I relate to this guy? Do I have the same feelings for somebody else? Now you might think, I have never wished that someone to be a stillborn, a sick. I think we do in a much more polite way. Think about it. Our society is a gentleman's society. We consider lots of things rude. You start bashing my political viewpoint, you're politically incorrect. You're rude. Tolerance everywhere. We're a gentleman society. But back in ancient Israel, gentleman society, men lived by the sword. Blood was just the nature of payback. War was at the hands of everybody. This was no gentle society. Their language is simply much more severe than ours is. I suggest that we have the same heart towards people when we say things like, yeah, he did that. It's okay, but he'll be sorry. Or he'll get his payback. Or he'll see in the end when it comes against him. He'll understand I was right. We say things like that. Just you wait and see. We get this satisfaction of retribution against them. He's like, oh, I'm not going to do anything. But I really hope that in the end it doesn't work out for them. Because I want to be right in the end. We just much more subtly have the same heart. And when we read Psalms like this, it should cause us to stop and check our heart and say, Lord... Are these same feelings of hatred within me? Second benefit of precatory psalms. They reveal, they reveal the magnitude of hurt that our words or actions can inflict upon another person. They reveal the magnitude of hurt that my words or actions can reveal against another person. What you have in these verses is a very raw expression of someone's feelings undisguised very rare I mean we talk to you how do you feel about that and we kind of sometimes tone it down I mean if you're really close to somebody you really let it out here's a psalmist as if he doesn't have an audience ever to think about just writing exactly how he feels and we have this rare glimpse into 
what a hurt soul feels like. How they feel towards those people. So it should make us stop and think, next time I'm going to offend somebody, sin against them, this is what I'm going to put them through. And that should cause me to be very hesitant. Third benefit. The imprecatory psalms sober us with the tormenting temptation we can trap a soul in. You can trap a soul in tormenting temptation through the things you do and say. Because when I hurt somebody to this degree, I commit a twofold sin. My wicked act in the first place for saying you're doing something stupid against them. And then the second is what I cause them to go through. I put them through a daily temptation. Because they, of course, when I wrong them, have the choice. I'm going to either forgive them or hold bitterness and a grudge against them. And of course, if they're a Christian, they'll probably choose through Christ's power to forgive me. But guess what happens? Forgiveness isn't easy. Things resurface over and over And we must constantly choose to keep on forgiving somebody. And so I put that person in that situation where he has to continually choose over and over. Yes, I still forgive him. I still forgive him. This is on top of all the temptations his soul is already afflicted with by the enemy. I'm just adding to it. Forgiveness is very challenging. Jesus said that we're to do it 70 times 7. Metaphorically to say... As many times as it takes. But notice what Jesus didn't say. His point wasn't that we're to forgive a mere sin only 490 times. The point was that we were to forgive... Excuse me, I said that backwards. Let me say that again. The point wasn't that we merely forgive 490 offenses, but that we forgive the same offense 490 times. Keep on forgiving as it is continually resurfaced. And so, as again, I'll quote C.S. Lewis about how I become the tempter when I hurt somebody in this way. He says, how do I, who provoked that hatred in that person, stand? For in addition to the original injury that I've done him, I've also done him a far worse one. I have introduced into his inner life at best, a new temptation, and at worst, a new besetting sin. And if that sin utterly corrupts him, I have, in a sense, debauched, morally corrupted, or seduced him. I was the tempter. We take the side of Satan when we can hurt somebody to the point that they want to call these kinds of curses upon our head. So, this shows us that as bad as this curse is, behind all of these curses is an equally bad cause that caused the curse. So, we can benefit from these to realize, I need to check my heart. I need to realize what people go through when I do things. And I need to realize that I can actually cause them to have unforgiveness in their heart. I don't want to be the tempter in that sense. So as we step away from the imprecatory psalms now, the biggest thing to take out of it is that there, the existence of these psalms show that there is evil in this world. It exists, and God hates it. But there's also a judge 
who will right the wrongs of time. And it's not in our hands, it's not in our prayers to write it. It's in the judge's time to come and judge. So, the imprecatory psalms. But now, as we can see, the psalmist who is in the midst of difficulty has distorted God's purpose. He's not calling blessing upon the nations, he's calling curses. He's not loving his neighbor, he's hating. How do I get to the place where my difficulty no longer prioritizes my preferences, but can start praising God's purposes instead? How do I get to the place where my difficulty no longer distorts my vision of His purpose? How can we praise His purposes when they are in conflict with our preferences? I'll suggest that the answer is in the reoccurring phrase over and over in these five chapters, the steadfast love of God. Or, if you have a New King James, it's translated mercy, which is a bad translation, I'll tell you that in a minute. But, the steadfast love of God. The unfailing, steadfast love of God enables you to praise His purposes in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of of preferences that aren't happening for you. Check out 57 verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. He's praising God, all right. I will give praises to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Because, verse 10, because your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Because of God's unending, faithful, steadfast love, he's able to praise his purposes. Look at 59, verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. You've probably heard it before. It's often in relation to God's covenantal promises with his people. But really, more generally, just refers to his gracious, undeserved love for his people. And it's an unfailing love, which is why I like the translation steadfast love better than mercy. I think the ESV got that one pretty good there. Steadfast means it goes on forever. And it's the same idea, the same word that's in Lamentations 3.22. You guys know this. We sing, men at least, we sing it at the men's breakfast often. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In other words, this type of love goes on for eternity. His mercies never come to an end because they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So this love is Faithful, it's unending, it's eternal, it's faithful, I said faithful, it's there, it's victorious. And that is what gives the psalmist, or should give the psalms, and gives us the ability to praise his purposes when my preferences aren't going the way I had hoped. And this will prevent us from distorting God's purposes. So, 
To close, there's three ways that receiving this kind of love will enable me to praise His purposes in the midst of my difficulties. That in my difficulties I can say, His purposes stand, I praise those, I'm not prioritizing the way I wish things were. I can go with the flow here. So the first way is in 58 verse 11. The first way is that God's love will win. (laughs) Know that God's love will win. Says in verse 11, Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. 59.5 Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Again, that's in the future, that's right, and that's God's victory. Look at verse 13. In the middle it says, They may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. He's the king, he's the ruler. So we see that God will become judge, he will become king. Um, One more in 61 verse 6. Prolong the life of the king, may his years endure to all generations. That cannot be a human. All generations is divinity. They want God to be king. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So God's love will win. His purposes will end with victory and my vindication. Therefore, I don't have to take my preferences into my own hands. I can release them and say God's purposes are perfect. Because his love will sustain me to the end and it wins. Number two, God's love fulfills his purpose for me. It fulfills his purpose for me in 57 verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. The New King James reads that God performs all things for me, fulfills his purpose, performs all things. It should ring in your head, Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, He works all things together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And also Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The context of Romans 8.28 That he works all things together for good, according to his purpose. What purpose is that? We said the purpose of God is Genesis 12, 2 and 3. To bless the nations by restoring them to himself. And if you look at Romans 8, 29, it continues to say the same thing. It says that God is going to bring his saints to their final destination of glory with him. Another way of saying blessing us with restoration. And what that passage in Romans, what the point of it is, by saying all things are going to work together for good, is that no matter what, the result will be, you will be glorified with God forever, because that's His purpose. That's the point of all things work together good for His purpose. His purpose is that you will be glorified forever. So guess what's going to happen? You will be glorified forever and ever, and it will come to pass. Nothing is going to stand in the way of that. And if it ever tries to, God uses it to bring you to that purpose. 
So you win. His purposes prevail my preferences because his steadfast love will see to it that I will be there. So God's love will win. God's love fulfills his purpose for me. And finally, God's love is our refuge. His love, that steadfast love, that eternal, faithful, secure, victorious love is my refuge. And it was the psalmist's refuge too in 57.1. It says, be merciful to me. 57.1. Be merciful, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. And if you look down at verse 3, it connects it with steadfast love. Also, in 59 verse 9. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, you are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. So steadfast love and refuge there. And then finally in 61.3, he says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever, and let me take refuge under the shadow of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You notice that in both two of those passages, it referred to taking refuge under the shadow of God's wings. That is imagery from what God did for Israel when he led them out of Egypt. His saving purposes. That's imagery for that. Exodus 19.4. God says to his Israelites, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Moses says in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided Israel. No foreign God was with him. So I'm going to take shelter under your wings, O God. God, you're, you're the God whose steadfast love led your people out of the oppression of Egypt, out of their difficulty, out of things that weren't necessarily their preference. And you brought them to, their, to your purpose. You brought them to salvation. You showed power for them. I'm going to put my refuge in that. And further, it is also believed that the wings could refer to the cherubim wings that outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant. Where God's actual covenant for his people was God's throne was there and he ruled over his people and kept the covenant from that mercy seat and the wings spread over it. And it's as if the psalmist is saying, I want to be under those wings. I want to be under your covenant, under your steadfast promised love forever. Because my preferences aren't happening. So I'm, I'm leeching to your purposes, and I'm going to trust them, and I'm going to go with them to the end. Because I know what your purposes do. I looked at the exodus in Egypt. I, I know where it's going. The steadfast, unending love, that's what the psalmist wants to take shelter under the wings of that love. And Paul gave us permission to do the same thing. Romans 8, again, verse 35 You all know this very well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And and, and picture the steadfast love of God in this passage. It's just bursting with it. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And the point of that phrase is actually, that verse he quotes is actually, even in persecution, you're not separated from the love of God. No, in all these things, even persecution, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Close quote. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God will fulfill his purpose for me. So confidently, Christian, confidently praise God and praise his purposes in the midst of your difficulties. The goal is not to look back and say, but this is my preference, God. Why are you not working all things for my good? He is. But we must praise his purposes above our preferences. And the only way to do that is to see the steadfast love of the Lord, that it is ultimately victorious. That it will fulfill God's purpose for me. And that in it, I can take refuge. So the unfailing, steadfast love of the Lord enables me to praise His purposes in the midst of difficulty. Father, we ask that that would be the case for us, that you would give us a fresh sight of your steadfast love. And that in the midst of what we're going through, we would cling to your love and not our preferences. Difficulties, Lord. Your love never fades. It never wanders. So, Father, enable us to be blessers instead of cursers. Because we are those who sing of your steadfast love and praise your purpose. So help my brothers and sisters who are in the midst of difficulty and and seeing your purposes be distorted by their situation. Renew them with your steadfast love. Bring them under the shadow of your wings, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.